So thank you once again to the grade five, six kids. You were awesome and amazing. Thank you so much. It's just fun to uh, read and hear and see the scripture presented in such a different way. I'm so thankful for all that. And actually, as we, today as we study uh, Luke chapter 10, I'm actually, uh, it's actually challenging and fun all at the same time to study a text that's so familiar uh, to people. Uh, I heard someone once mention that the Good Samaritan story may be the one story in Scripture that people who have never picked up the Bible before know about Jesus' teachings. We use the term Good Samaritan commonly throughout society. Ontario even has something called the Good Samaritan Act. It's a part of our law that provides legal protection for those people who help strangers in a crisis. And quite frankly, the story is really simple. Many of you know it. There's a person who's been beaten up, two robbers, by, by a group of robbers. A priest, a Levite, two religious types come up. They see him. They pass by and don't help. But a Samaritan, who's supposedly uh, their enemy, uh, comes, bandages, takes care, and provides great care. And most people, when they read the story, they think to themselves, the moral is that every person is your neighbor and we're supposed to be nice to all people. And while that is true, uh, let me quote, I'm going to tell a nerdy theological joke from one of my favorite uh, theologians, Don Carson. His, his, maybe you've heard this before. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Let me say that again. Yeah, I, ex- I expected kind of crickets on this one. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Anything taken out of context be- can become whatever you want it to mean. And we see that all the time. People can use whatever they want to. Two sides of a political argument can take the exact same author and use it to manipulate it to their cause. So that's why context is so critical and so important in understanding what the Word of God says. And today, as we look at this text and the context, I think we'll be challenged to not only just love our enemies, but respond to, a, to Jesus in a different way because of the way he has responded to us first. So, if you brought your Bible with you, what we're going to do today is open it up, read a couple verses at a time, and slowly work our way through the passage. But I invite you now to open up to Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 to 37. Feel free to open it up on your phone. If you are new here, feel free to grab one of these blue Bibles in the row in front of you and open up to page 843, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I even just encourage you, as we're going through this, to keep your Bibles open and keep referencing back to the Word of God to see uh, how this is all put together. So let me begin in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, we're kind of already off to a bad start here. A genuine learner seeks to understand and ask questions and learn. This expert of the law is, what's he doing? He's trying to test Jesus. He has a hidden agenda. So Jesus, like a smart teacher, doesn't respond directly to his question. The best techniques to to people who are trying to trick you are usually to ask another question or tell a story. Watch Jesus do both of this, both of these throughout this text. So Jesus simply asks him a question instead. In verse 26, it reads, Jesus asks, What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with 
all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. If this is the end of the story, this is a very boring dialogue. This man comes to Jesus and, like, let me tell you the story in a different way. It's like if I went up to uh, Pastor Andrew over here and said, Andrew, what do I need to retire? And he looks at me, he's like, I don't know. What do you need to retire? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Live within my means, save, invest. He's like, yeah, great. Do this and you can retire. I've basically told myself the, my own story here. And this man, because he's trying to test Jesus and figure something out, he's not really asking authentic questions. His goal is basically to trap and test Jesus and justify himself, make himself look good. So he continues in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? If you had noticed the when Jesus asked, what does the law say, the man made reference to two passages, one in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and one in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And the expert of the law, the love, your, love God is in Deuteronomy 6, 5, love your neighbor passage is Leviticus 19, verse 18. And 19, verse 17, 18 reads, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor Frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know what? If you just read those two verses and you heard the question, who is my neighbor? You would basically think your neighbor was the people of the same ethnicity who lived around you. And that's kind of what this expert of the law is going for. But if we actually go to Leviticus chapter 19 and look around, let me just read this for you. In verse 33, it says, When the foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> a text without a context is a proof is a pretext for a proof text. This expert of the law, he should know better. He's an expert in the law. But he's trying to find a way to justify himself, to make the law seem doable so he can attain to God. Yet, that's clearly not how Jesus is going to let this happen, right? So Jesus begins to tell a story in verse 30. And as we, before we read this, there's a couple things about the context of the, of the history between the Jews and Samaritans that is key to know. We've been talking about the Jewish-Samaritan relations. We see it in chapter 9, the, uh, Luke chapter 9, right beforehand. The, Jew, the response of the disciples when the Samaritan people reject Jesus, they call for fire to be brought down on the Samaritans. It's funny, when the Jews rejected Jesus, they don't ask for the fire to be called down. But you know when they're enemies, they're like, bring the fire, Lord, bring the fire. <laughs> You wouldn't cut through the land of Samaria. Jews feared going through. They were beaten. They thought the Samaritans were kind of a, a broken hat. They were like, they're a mixed breed, impure people, and they kind of just looked down and despised them. The history between them was really bad. Somebody even threw bones into the temple a few years before, which would have been kind of like the equivalent of 
Like dead bones into temple would be like throwing a, a pig into a mosque or a synagogue. It could be the most degrading thing that you could ever do uh, to, into a place of religious worship. So there's blood blood. But there's something interesting that unites the Jews and Samaritans as well. The Jews believe in what we call the Old Testament is their scripture. Uh, Samaritans hold to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the oh, sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, kind of the Pentateuch as we often call it. So when this expert of the law quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy as kind of uh, the way to how to inherit eternal life, he's quoting two texts that both the Samaritans and the Jews can get on board with. Even though there's bad blood, this text would be something that would unite these two groups together. So let's go through this text. In verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, and once again, when someone has to ask you a not-so-great question, Jesus now is going into storytelling mode to kind of better explain what's going on here. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Their trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho sits below sea level, so the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho is a steep, downward, windy trek from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a great place for robbers to hide, but it's also an area you can see further down the road. So people who traveled in that time uh, would have used great caution. And there's a few things that would be really important. In this text, it says he was half dead, probably meaning he was lying unconscious on the road. And there's another mention of a fact. He's been stripped of his clothes. It's kind of an oddity, but it's actually a really important thing to note. In a highly structured uh, first century context, you could look at someone's clothes, you could listen, hear their accent, and you could tell what part of the country they were from, uh, what, what their ethnicity was, what their socioeconomic standing was, and you could discern really quickly whether they're like your enemy or your friend. And when you're traveling a dangerous road, this is a really critical thing to know. You kind of want to know, is the person that I'm approaching going to try to rob me, or can we give like a high five to each other as we go by? So, there's these... So if the man is unconscious and he can't talk, and if he's stripped of his clothes, anyone walking by him has no idea, is this person a neighbor or an enemy? someone I have to be weary of or someone that I can care for. And we see this play out in the next section. Verse 31 and 32. The priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. We saw the kids act this out really well. And... There was like a real critical thing of just passing by on the other side. You see, first of all, the priest goes by. Priests were part of like upper society or probably more well-to-do. They would have been, along with their wealth, would have probably meant that they would have been riding an animal as they passed by on this road. And therefore, they would have had the means to transport an injured party to somewhere safer. Yet as the priest approaches the body, he doesn't know if this man is a neighbor or a foreigner because his clothes have been stripped and he is unconscious. He is constrained by kind of the temple law that says he can't get within six feet of a dead body. If the man's unconscious, he doesn't know if he's dead or alive. And he can't go close enough to figure that out. 
Because if he went close enough to figure it out, he would be considered ritually, uh, like he would be unclean, and that would have been costly, and it would take about a week to become uh, pure and clean again. He would have to go through a ceremony, he would have to buy animals and offer sacrifices, and for that entire week, he wouldn't be able to work, function, earn money for his family, and provide for the people around him. I think one commentator was even uh, made a note that he would have, pr the priest as he was walking by, probably would have heard the whisperings of his family and his servants and possibly his colleagues to say, to move on by, don't bother with this man, and don't put your family in financial and social jeopardy. Even though it seems strange to us, many of the listeners, the Jewish listeners who would have heard about a priest walking by, would have understood why he passed by on the other side. The Levite who follows uh, is not trapped by this six-feet rule that you can't come within six feet of a dead body. Yet he isn't as wealthy. He might have been on foot. If he was on foot, there would have been no way to transport this man. All he could do was offer maybe first aid, sit by his side and care for him. But maybe he feared the robbers. Maybe he worried for his own safety and decided to pass by. I can understand that. Maybe he feared being robbed and beaten, just like the man on the road. We can't be ultimately sure, but the character who comes next responds in a way that would have surprised the listening audience. In verse 33 and 30 to 35, it reads, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw them, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You have to remember... Jews saw themselves as better than Samaritans. Jews were of pure blood. They were spiritually on point. They worshipped in the right way. They worshipped in the right location. The Samaritans were kind of an annoying half-brother from a second marriage who, they, who were treated like second-rate citizens. To the Jewish listeners of that time who heard this story, they would have been thinking, there's no way this scum Samaritan would stop and care for us. It would have kind of boiled up kind of a sense of injustice. And yet, that is how the story is told. And that's exactly the response Jesus is going for. We see five, I think there's five things to note in the Samaritan man. He is filled with compassion or pity. This is a strong word in the Greek. It comes from like the inner, it comes from deep within us, a sense of compassion that overflows uh, for the person. Number two, he uses his own resources, oil and wine. Those aren't cheap items to care for the man. He stops. He gives his time to take care of the person in trouble. He stops by his side and just, you know, cares for him in that way. Fourthly, he, he risks his own well-being by stopping on the road. I've never thought about this before. If you see a man who's just been beaten to a pulp, lying on a road, you think to yourself, common sense says, the robbers might be still around. If I hang out here too long, I might get beaten as well. But he doesn't stop. 
He cares for the man. He's filled with compassion, and he just spends time bandaging, taking care of. And then he places the man on his donkey, takes him to an inn, and promises, if there are additional costs, I'll cover them. As I was reading through some commentaries and studying this text, I, there's something fascinating about that. If you accumulated a debt in an inn and you had no money to pay for it, the owner of the inn had the legal right to sell you as a slave to cover the costs. So, the Samaritan man goes above and beyond because he wants to ensure when this man recovers, he can get back to his normal life. So he covers the, all the costs that could potentially put this man back into slavery or back or into slavery and into trouble because he, he's filled with compassion and he overflows and he cares deeply. The Samaritan is moved with compassion. He uses his own resources. He gives up his time. He risks his own well-being and he goes above and beyond to ensure the long-term care and protection of this man. As I was kind of reflecting on this story, there are many times I come across human need. Uh, I was particularly thinking about caring for the homeless in Toronto, where my heart's not really filled with compassion. Sometimes if I'm honest, I give food or buy someone a drink or a coffee just so I don't have to spend my time with them. I use my time or my money to save my time, sadly. Sometimes I want to help, but in a way that will not cost me financially or forces me to be part of a solution that's more holistic or takes time. I just want to do something quick and then just get out of there and carry on with what I want to do with my life. Sometimes I don't engage in difficult situations because I fear for my well-being. I'm concerned about that. Yet when we look, so when Jesus turns to the expert of the law and asks him in verse 36, look at his response. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert of the law replied, and probably very begrudgingly, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The man had no choice but to respond by saying that the one who had, the one who had mercy on him. I, my guess here is the expert of the law simply couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan possibly because of his distaste and dislike for him. Yet, when Jesus asked him, he knew the right answer, even if he had a hard time admitting it. And the whole dialogue ends with a simple phrase, go and do likewise. The phrase, go and do likewise, is also a definitive answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor, not just the people around you who are like you. The Good Samaritan shows us the simple truth. All people, regardless of race, gender, or socioeconomic status, are our neighbor. So what do we do with this? I think there are a couple things that come to mind. The first thing is I want to take us to the gospel narrative, and then I want to take us to how this uh, Samaritan story applies to our daily life. First, the expert of the law he was trying to find a way to justify himself, to make himself look good, a way to attain to God, or a way that he could somehow keep the commandments of the law and therefore be accepted by God. You look at what Jesus does all the time. It's really hilarious. When people are like, 
The Ten Commandments, all I got to do is not murder, not commit adultery. He raises the bar so high all the time that the, it's, it's not just murder. It's any sort of hate in your heart. Actually, as I was driving here today and I was praying, suddenly something popped in my head, and then I realized I had a really hateful thought to someone close to my life. And I'm confessing that as I'm coming here, I'm like, no, this is, this is ironic that I'm preaching on this text, and here I am bitter and angry at people in my own life. And when Jesus talks about adultery in that passage in Matthew, he says not only adultery but lust. He raises the bar so high that it becomes unattainable to actually be able to do this on our own strength. And guess what? That's good news. <laughs> In a weird way. This is the call of the gospel. And this is why we call it good news. Because we can't do it on our own strength. Every religion and worldview seeks to earn favor or work hard to get to God. Yet the way of Christ cannot be earned. It's a gift that God gives to us. How can we broken humans ever be justified or earn our way to a perfect God? We can't. And why do I say this with joy? Because the good news is the story that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and took the sins of the world upon himself when he went to the cross and died for the sin of all humankind. And here's the call. If we accept his gift of life, we can know him, be forgiven of our sins, and delight in a relationship with God now and forevermore. The only way we can love our neighbor is because God first loved us. Only through the cross are we able to experience the power of the Spirit to love those whom we cannot naturally love. Put me around people who like me, I can like them. That's not the hardest thing in the world. Put me around people who mock me because of my faith in Christ, who hate me because of the tone of my skin. And you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I might not like them very much. And I'll tell you one thing. I definitely won't be able to love them like I love my wife or I love my own children. That's hard. It's impossible. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, we have the ability through the power of the Spirit to love others. The only way we can love our neighbor is because God loved us first. And if you have never accepted Christ as, and the gift that he is offering, I invite you to accept this offer. And feel free to ask the person you came with or even me after the service if you have any more questions about this. Without the cross of Christ, we have no power to love anyone. Secondly, since it is only through the power of Christ that we can truly love others, the second question is simply this. Who is my neighbor that I'm having trouble loving? For some of us, like I said, it might be someone close in your own family who you're frustrated or bitter about. Uh, for some of us, our neighbor might be someone new to Canada who baffles us because they don't try hard enough to learn English or understand our way of life. For some of us, it might be people of different generations, whether old or young, who we consider closed-minded or lazy or insensitive or too sensitive or whatever it might be. For some of us, it might be people from a Muslim background or different religions uh, who we just have a hard time loving or had bad experiences with, whether here in Canada or at our, in our home country. It also may be a colleague or a family member from the LGBTQI community who we, in our heart, despise or hate. 
We need to allow the power of the cross to rule our lives in order to be people who can love our enemy. It's as simple as that. It's interesting in this story that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Jesus would have disagreed with the Samaritan's theology, understanding of the Bible, and ways of worship, yet he still uses the Samaritan as the protagonist, as the hero, to challenge his own people to love their enemies. It's as simple as this. We are commanded to love our enemies. It doesn't mean we have to affirm what others believe or that we're compromising what we believe by showing others love. Let me repeat that again. I want to be clear. We are commanded to love our enemies. And this, this doesn't mean we have to affirm what others believe or that we're compromising what we believe by showing them love. Because here's the reality. Only the cross of Christ can save all of us, including me and you. That's why the Good Samaritan story isn't just a story about loving your enemies. It's a story about a God who loved us when we treated him as an enemy. The Good Samaritan is a story about a God who loved us when we treated him as an enemy. When we despised him, when we spat on him, when we hated him, he sent his son, and his son sacrificed his life that we may live with him. Honestly, I can't imagine a life without this good news. I am in desperate need of this good news. There is no way I can love others unless the power of the cross is living powerfully in my life. I need the cross. We all need the cross. And without the sacrifice of Christ through the love of God, I do not have the strength to love others and love God. So as I call the worship team up right now, I just have two questions for us to think about. Do you find the power for Christian living in the cross and in what Jesus has done for us? And secondly, in light of that, who is your enemy that the cross of Christ is calling you to love? Let me just repeat those one more time. Do you find the power of Christian living in the cross and in what Jesus has done for us? And secondly, in light of that, who is your enemy that the cross of Christ is calling you to love.